Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. Well, meet me in Nehemiah chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. Nehemiah chapter 2. If you were with us last week, have y'all enjoyed? Did y'all enjoy last week? Starting this series, I got two claps, so maybe it wasn't good enough. So I need y'all to talk to me this morning. Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah, we're walking through this, and I, I love looking at him, just the fact that he stands firm on the faithfulness of God, and through that rebuilds a city, brings people together, and they dedicate their lives to the work of the Lord. And so we'll be in Nehemiah 2, where we're entitling this series, Let's Rebuild. Let's Rebuild. If you have Nehemiah 2, we're going to read it in its entirety. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read and honor the word together if you're able. I've got a bit to read today. Nehemiah chapter 2. If you got it, go ahead and say, got it. All right, starting in verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan, read along as you hear the narrative, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me or given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asap, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night. I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley of gate, uh, gate to uh, the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley, inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, nobles, the officials, and the rest who were due to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? 
Then I replied to them, I love this, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Very words of God. Amen. Today, I want to preach on the topic walking in favor, walking in favor. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, you are awesome, amazing, high and lifted up, but you still see fit to love us. God, I do pray as we enter this time that you would hide me behind your cross, Lord Jesus. Decrease me so that you may increase. Holy Spirit, have your way with my words and in the hearts of your people today. Get glory in this place, Jesus. It's in the mighty name. Jesus, that we all said together, amen, amen. You can be seated. Well, when I was a kid, many of you know this already. I've said this before, but my father uh, did not live in the house when I was a child growing up. So I I spent a lot of time with my uncles growing up, and I I learned a lot from them. I, I learned many things about manhood. I, I played football because my, my uncles played football. I, I read certain books and I had a knack for business and almost went into the medical field because of my uncles. I, I would probably say that much of my love for African-American history and why I studied it a bit in college it's not just because I'm a black man but because my uncles had a business called Aesop where they sold uh, different books and publications and pamphlets on uh, famous or heroic African-American figures throughout history. They gave it out to people so they can learn about where we came from, and that stirred my passion for history and, and learning from where I came because I remember late nights, all throughout the night, because it was a startup, having to pack boxes of these publications. And if you've been around your uncles and aunties and cousins and older ones, while you're doing stuff with them, you're going to get undoubtedly some type of lesson. And so they're teaching me about everything that I'm packing, and that stirred a passion for me. I I, I even started going to church because my uncle would pick me up, and he would take me with him as we visited different churches all around Indianapolis. I, I learned a lot from them. And one day, my uncle Anton, I remember this like yesterday, he came to me, he said, Derek, I got something for you, man, and I want it to be yours, but if I give it to you, you have to promise that you will take care of it. You got to take care of it. I'm going to give it to you, but you got to take care of it, and it'll be yours. So we proceeded to walk out the house into his garage, and when we walked into the garage, there it was, y'all, his old moped. Now, some of y'all have no idea what that is. You've never been on one. But just picture this. It's, it's, a, it's like a, a, a motorcycle that goes slower for teenagers, and you don't need a license. And so for me, as a young boy, I'm like, yes. I'm over the moon excited that he's given me his moped. And he said, Derek, it's yours if you promise to care for it. I'm going to get it fixed for you. We're going to work on this together. We'll get it up and running, but you got to maintain it and it's yours. You got to promise me that. Now, y'all have to understand this joint was old. It's from, it had to be from like the 80s, maybe the first type of moped ever. And, 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 and this is like 90s and, and, and late 90s. And so, y'all, it was old and there's a lot of work to be done. So we had to strip this thing down, take a look at the tires. I'm learning about spark plugs and cleaning out gas tanks and stuff like that. And then, but once we got it done, she was ready to go and it was mine. And I made it my mission to keep this thing clean and running. I, I was meticulous about it, every part about it. And honestly, I didn't let many of my friends ride it because they didn't know what they was doing. And I don't have the money to fix this thing. I mean, put it back together if they break it. So you, you can't ride it. And so at a young age, I learned how to care for something. And 
I, I broke it down many times because sometimes it wouldn't start. And so I had to take it out and clean the spark plugs off, spray it with some stuff and make sure it's clean. And then it would start back up. I mean, it was a it was a pretty high maintenance moped. It wasn't one of them ones where you you press the button. You had to like pedal this joint to and, and then hold down the clutch to get it going. Y'all, y'all don't know what I'm talking about. But you, you had to pedal it like a bike and then it would start up and then you could just roll on it. I mean, it, 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 even the gas, you couldn't put regular gas in it. You had to mix it with two-cycle oil, some of young, two-cycle oil, and you put it in there, and then it would, it would start up because you put gas in it. Y'all, you would mess the whole engine up and all the spark plugs and, 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 and fuel injectors and stuff, so you had to get it right. And see, so what I'm really getting at is that I had this great gift, and although he gave it to me, I still had to care for it. It leads to where we're going today because sometimes, if not most of the time, we as a people, we want the favor or the good things of God apart from hardships. We want the favor of God without preparation, without planning. We want the good things of God without being obedient. See, we live in a culture of entitlement. And because of this, well, since I did this or I've done this, somehow we believe, well, I'm old or warranted this. And the sad thing about this, as I step into your neighborhood more, is that this sense of entitlement, if it has not already done so, it creeps into our relationship with God. And now that relationship with God becomes transactional. God, I did this thing, so you should do this for me. I I scratched your back, God. I did something great, so you got to scratch mine now. And here's the reality. God does want good things for you. He does want to do good things for you. But that never comes without, hear me, obedience. That never comes without planning or preparation or, here it is, the proper stewardship of what he's given you. Stewardship meaning it's not yours. But it's been given to you to care for it and honor him who gave it to you. I don't want y'all to miss this. So so when my uncle gave me the moped, I not only cared cared for it because I loved it. I cared for it because I wanted to honor my uncle. See, so I, I have to ask you, because this is for all of us. God has given each one of us life. We have breath within our lungs. We have woken up this morning because of him. We all have individual gifts that he's given each one of us. The question we have to answer this morning is how are you going to steward what he's given you? How are you going to honor him with what he's given you? That may be your finances. How are you going to steward those to honor him? That may be your relationship with your spouse or your friend or in the classroom. How are you going to honor God with what he's given you? Today, we're going to look at Nehemiah. And in this text, Nehemiah, he's granted favor from God. And I I want you to watch what he does with it. Got three points, and we can get to brunch. Except y'all members, y'all got to stick around. Three points. Number one. God grants favor. Number two, favor does not come void of preparation and planning. Number three, God takes care of his own. Number one, God grants favor. Favor does not come void of preparation and planning. Three, God takes care of his own. Now, By way of reminder, just in case you weren't with us last week or you have forgotten, uh, Nehemiah is a book where we see one man interceding on behalf of a people, and he leads this time of rebuilding and realigning to the will of God. See, Nehemiah sets out to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem physically, but in actuality, his hope is that the people would turn their hearts away from their idols or the things that they have set their uh, affections on and turn back to the God who loves them. 
This narrative of is how a, a leader, it's a narrative of how a leader through his faithfulness and boldness leads a people to rebuild a nation, turn their hearts to God. And family, as I said last week, I want us to be those figurative Nehemiahs who turn our hearts to God. And in doing so, we see not only this church, but a, a city that learns to love God and revere him with all of our hearts. So the question I asked you last week, and I still want you to ponder it, not only today, but throughout this series, is are you a Nehemiah-like person? Are you a Nehemiah-like seeing God work time and time again, and even though you might be in a hard situation now, you know that he's not going to leave you. Are you a Nehemiah-like person? Chapter 1, Nehemiah, by way of reminder, he's told of this great trouble and this shame that's concerning the people of Israel, his, he's told this by his brother Hanani, and the walls have been torn down. They've been broken down, and Jerusalem and its gates have been burned. This is year 20. We see this in our text today, year 20 of King Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., and it's 13 years after Ezra has now gone back to Judah. Now, who is Ezra? Last week, I told you to properly understand the book of Nehemiah, you need to read Ezra hand in hand with Nehemiah because scholars would tell us that Ezra and Nehemiah are possibly wrote, written by the same uh, writer. And so you'll see some of the same things in one book that are in the other book because they overlap in different ways. But what we learn in Ezra, for my Bible thumpers in here, is that that there has been a time of exile where the people have been captured by the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar, in 586 B.C. They stay in captivity or exile from 586 B.C., keep following me, to 539 B.C., when King Cyrus of Persia overthrows the Babylonian army. And in doing so, a year later, 538 B.C., he issues a decree for the people of Israel to go back to Judah. So now they're free. They're free from exile, free from captivity. Now, you got to follow this and you got to pay attention to this because some of these people, well, they've all been in captivity for 50 years, but some of them stayed for longer because all of them didn't travel at the same time. So you got some that have been here 50 years and you got some that have been here almost 70 years. You got to think about this because now they're told to go back to their land. And if you survived or if you lived this long, 50 to 70 years, that means when you go back to this land, you, you're, you're going to see people you don't know. People that didn't go into exile, that you don't know them anymore, they, they're all grown up or they weren't there when you left. And then you're, you're going to see people that came in that are from different ethnic groups. And you're like, I, that, this used to be all us. I don't know them. And then on top of that, you're not going to recognize the land. I mean, think about it. Jay, if you left Chicago for 50 to 70 years, let alone be alive at the end of that, would you, I mean, with everything that's changing here, would you recognize this city? No. You'd be like, I don't, that building, where, where that, my neighborhood looks totally different. Things change. And so these people are going back into their homeland, probably feeling like foreigners. With all of that, Ezra, he, he scouts the land and he looks out and he notices two things about the people. He notices that they are struggling now with their allegiance in their identity in being a son or daughter of God. And then on top of that, they're struggling with all the societal and social pressures that have now come into the land because all of these people that once weren't from, weren't from here are now in the land and they bring stuff with them, different values. And so you got people struggling with their identity in who they are as a son or daughter of God. And then you have them struggling with the different societal pressures from different people. Y'all, that's a horrible combination. Ezra sees this, and this is what Nehemiah is hearing about, these words that the people are free. And the, the nation, though, although they're free, they're in shambles. The people have lost their way. The temple is no more. And everybody and anybody is coming in and out of the land. There are remnant that remain in Jerusalem, and, and those who survived the exile are in trouble. And here's, here's, here's what I said last week, and this is what I want you to remember. I believe... That much of what they're going through is similar to what we're experiencing today. We, in many ways, as a church and as a people, have lost our identity. And we're surrounded by all types of different societal pressures. 
This is how you should parent people. This is how you should different pressures. So we're struggling with our identity, but then we got all these pressures. Y'all, this is a horrible combination. And it causes us to drift away from the God who loves us. It causes us to to struggle in our relationship. That is, if we have one with him. Nehemiah, he shows up and he shows us what it looks like to stand on the promises of God. He shows us what it looks like to lead a people that are wayward. And I believe that if we stand firm like Nehemiah, we can see revival in our city. We can see a church that can't be held down by walls. Amen? So so let's dive into the text. First chapter, uh, in in chapter 1, the text said that it was in the month of, uh, or timing, that that when when Nehemiah is praying, it's in the month of Kislev, which uh, when you do your research, that's December. That's around December. Now, the text today, chapter 2, tells us that it's the month of Nisan, uh, which is which is March or April. And so follow me with this. This means that Nehemiah spent some four months or so praying before he says anything to the king. Let let me ask you, how many of you know sometimes you just got to take your time praying over something? Sometimes you just got to be patient and allow God to work in your heart to get you to a place where he's ready to use you. Sometimes you just got to keep praying to where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has called you to do this thing. Sometimes you just got to sit. But see, that's where we get in trouble. Because most of the time, we ain't sat in prayer long enough. And, and, and me. so I pray and now I start moving about and doing what I want to do, what I prayed on, automatically assuming that God is with me. And I end up in a place where I'm hurt. I'm sad. I'm mad. Just, just in a plain, horrible space. Y'all ever been there before? The text says Nehemiah waited some four months. He doesn't say anything to the king. Now, now let me paint this picture for you. Because I don't want you to miss what's going on right here. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, meaning that he's with the king all the time because he's bringing his wine. And back then they drank wine probably more than water, y'all. So he's with the king every day, probably multiple times of the day. But it's not until this day that the king notices Nehemiah's face. This means that Nehemiah kept quiet. And he kept a smile on his face every day because part of being the cupbearer probably means you got to be merry. You got to be happy because you're, you're keeping the spirits of the king up when you come into him. So, so, so he's coming in happy. But this day, watch how God <laughs> works this thing out for his favor. Nehemiah still doesn't say anything. He doesn't make an appointment. He doesn't start the conversation. He doesn't do anything. He's just being faithful. Don't miss it. He's being faithful at his job, and God, in his timing, four months after Nehemiah prayed, allows the king to see his servant saddened. He asked him, why are you sad? You're not sick. Why are you sad? Nehemiah, he gives the king his proper praise by saying, may the king live forever. But then he just rattles off all this stuff, and he says, basically, I'm sad because my people are struggling. My, my people are in a place that I, that, 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 a hard place. Again, Nehemiah, he's the cupbearer. He really isn't supposed to talk. Bring the cup, just serve. And the king asked him about his feelings. Y'all, this will make you shout. It'll make you shout a bit because Nehemiah, again, he's just being faithful in his day-to-day life and his walk with God. And in this, God causes the king to see his face and ask about his feelings. Listen, listen, hear me, hear me. God's favor never works on your timing. 
even if it works when you thought it was, it might not most of the time look the way you thought it was. His timing is different than yours. I, I, I can't believe that Nehemiah wanted to serve this dude every day while his, while his people are struggling for the last four months. But what is he doing? He's faithful in his day-to-day life and to God, and, and, and God causes this conversation to come about. And I know somebody's well, like, well, how do you know he was faithful? How do you know he was obedient? We don't know every part of his life, but what we do know is what the text says. Look at verse 4. The king says, well, okay, I hear you, Nehemiah, but what do you want? The text says in that moment, Nehemiah prays to God. Y'all, this is dead heat conversation with the king. You need to respond. He takes time and just prays silently. I can only imagine, he's like, God, just give me the right words to say to this king right now. This is a scary place. I need to say what needs to be said, and I need your favor right here. He stops and he asks the Lord. This is a picture what praying without ceasing looks like. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pray without ceasing in all Jesus for you. In all circumstances, not some, but all, because it's not your will, but it's God's will. You didn't give yourself life. God gave you life. You're not breathing because of you. God gave you breath. So listen, in all circumstances, we are to rely on him. And this, here it is, here's the kicker. This includes even when you know what to do. Even when you got the strength to make it through, we are still to rely on God. See, sometimes you just got to stop and pray. In the grocery store, stop and pray. Before the business meeting, stop and pray. Before your kids get up in the morning, stop and pray. And listen, it does not have to be all long and drawn out. Sometimes it's like breathing. Just stop and pray. God be with me today. God be with me in this business meeting and give me the words to say, God help me love my kids. God help me love my spouse. It doesn't have to be long. But Pastor D, why should I pray? Why? Because you want the favor of God in your life and for him to work, not just you. That's why we pray. I've shared about this before. I shared about my mentor, CJ. But as I started preaching more and traveling a bit, he used to always call me in the middle of my travel. and, And I never told him what was going on. This happened to me last week. He just, you call it the providence of God or just accountability. I, I didn't ask him to call. He just shows, he just calls me. God knew I needed to call. And, and I remember early on, I was traveling. I was going to preach at a conference. CJ calls me, and I answer the phone. What's up, Doc? What's up, man? I, I got to go preach, Doc. I got to go preach, and I'll I hit you back later. And he said, well, hold up, hold up. Sounds like you're running a bit. I, I got a couple things I need to say, and I'm, I'm going to let you go. One is a question. One I just need to say. I'm like, all right, shoot, man, I got to go preach. I got to go preach. And he says, well, first off, you ain't got to do nothing. It's a privilege that you get to preach the word. You ain't got to do nothing. God doesn't have to use you. He's choosing to use you. And I'm looking at the phone like, yo, homie, you call me. I got to preach, bro. You don't got to do nothing. And then he says, let me ask you, though. I know you, you're about to go preach. Did you spend time with Jesus today, D? In his word? I'm like, no, man, I didn't. I'll do that, I'll do that afterwards. He said, no, no. We're about to get off the phone. I know you at least got two minutes. Stop and pray. Spend time with Jesus. Ask him to guide you. Allow him to use you in your words. And it was in that moment that I was reminded of the privilege that it is to be able to preach the word of God, let alone be called 
a son of God through faith in Jesus who saved me. But number two, I'm in a relationship with Jesus, which means he's with me at all times. But I have to acknowledge him and rely on his sovereignty even when I can do it by myself. Even when I I know I can preach, I still got to rely on Jesus. When I know I can be a good father, I still got to rely on Jesus. When I'm working hard at my job, I still have to rely on Jesus. Lord, help me do what it is you called me to do. And see, this is where I believe some of us, including me at times, we need to learn from Nehemiah. Nehemiah, even though he prayed for this already in chapter 1, we talked about it last week, he's given the opportunity to speak. See, I believe sometimes we get used we get used to God. And we, 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 we start treating him like a roommate. You remember college roommates? You just walk past each other. We treat him like a roommate instead of depending on him. Let me ask you, what does your dependence, if existent, look like in your relationship with God? What does your dependence on him look like? Let me help you. Make a habit of just stopping and praying in all things. Make a habit of depending on him, calling out to him, and acknowledging him. Nehemiah submits his request here to God, and, 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 and then he tells the king, and after the king figures out how long he'll be gone, He grants it. It was easy. Nehemiah also, on top of that, you got to love this part, he asked for safe passage as he travels from the same people that halted this potential rebuilding in Ezra chapter 4. The same people that tore it down the first time. He's like, uh, hey, king, I need one more thing. Help me get through the land. And then on top of that, I need you to, I need them same people to give me some timber to build my house, and to build this temple. The same people that tore it down before, I need their help. I want you to tell them. Now, I don't have time to preach this, but isn't it funny that when you rely on God, you start walking with the Lord, how the same people that looked down on you, the same people that hated on you or tried to keep you from the straight and narrow, now they got to watch you as you ascend in your walk with the Lord. Isn't it funny how, how, how they got to watch now the, the fruit of your relationship with God when they once tried to take you down and to keep you from walking with him? It reminds me of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph and his brothers, they, they hated on Joseph to the point where they wanted to kill him. We're going to throw you in this well, but no, that ain't enough. Let's sell you to some traitors. Famine hits the land. Joseph's one of the highest in the land. And now they got to come and ask Joseph for some food. Isn't it funny? <laughs> How, how when you start walking with the Lord, those same people, now they got to watch God do some amazing things in your life. Y'all, God is good. Verse 8 says, the king granted it all for the good hand of God was upon Nehemiah. So, so we see that the favor of God was granted to Nehemiah, but that's just when the work starts. Listen, favor does not come without obedience. Doesn't come without planning, without preparation, and some hardships. Sometimes, although God might bless you with something or do something in your life, it does not mean it won't come without trouble. There may be some trouble. Look at verse 10 of the text. Two people, this is after the king said, go ahead. Two people named Sambalat and Tobiah, they're displeased with what Nehemiah is doing. They even, if you keep on rolling down verse 19, they try to say, you're rebelling against the king. And little do they know that the king told him to go ahead and do this. Listen, family, these two right here, they are a reminder that whenever you start walking with the Lord or you start doing something right in your life, enemies will show up. Satan has an agenda. 
And I don't say this to scare you. It's real. He has an agenda. This is why it's important to stand firm on God's faithfulness and his sovereignty or else we will get off track. You see this from the beginning of the Bible. When you go back to Genesis uh, chapter 3 with Adam and Eve in the garden, and the serpent just slithers, slithers on in there, challenges God's different characters in the Bible. You see them getting off track when they trust another word versus God's. This happens to us today. There is an adversary that does not want to see the kingdom of God prevail. And listen, he will use people, circumstances, and even your own doubts to keep you from walking in the will of God. The question we have to answer is, will we trust the word of God or will we trust his words? Which word are you going to trust? We'll get to how, how Nehemiah addresses this in a minute, but I, I love this because Listen, listen, sometimes I'll say this. You, you just got to remind yourself sometimes. You, you got to remind yourself. You got to remind the haters and whoever else is against you. The creator of all things is with me. The true king is with me. So I'm good. You can say whatever you want, do whatever you want. But the king of all kings is rolling with me. I'm good. Go ahead and look at your neighbor and say, I'm good. Say it like you mean it. You got to believe it. I'm good. I'm good. See, Nehemiah believes this in the text. I'm good. So he keeps on moving as if they didn't say nothing. In verse 11 through 15, it lets us know now that he keeps going. He's good. He takes a few people with him and he surveys the land. He makes a plan. He looks at the desecration of the land and he starts to make a plan. He doesn't tell any of the people in the land what he's doing. One, because everybody Obviously, they, they don't care. They're part of the problem. I can't tell them what I'm doing. And then secondly, he can't tell them because he has no plan yet. And without a plan, they ain't going to follow him. Now, here, here's my point with this. When believers are walking with the Lord and you're following what you will come with opposition, it will happen. But secondly... You can't tell everybody about what you're doing. Sometimes you got to just sit on it. Sometimes you just got to keep praying. Make a plan. Prepare. And only share with those that are closest to you, that believe the same thing you do. I'm pretty sure we all have examples of when we spoke too soon in our lives or somebody else spoke too soon in our lives. And, and, and when it happens, people just hate, just tear you down. Or even worse, whatever you thought was going to happen doesn't even happen. And now you look like a fool. Sometimes you got to just be quiet. Got to sit on it. And trust and roll with the people that are, are rolling with the Lord, they love him more than they love you. Jesus models this for us in Matthew 12, because y'all don't believe me. Matthew 12, 46 and 50, he says this. While he's speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In this passage, Jesus, his family, has come in and they're trying to stop Jesus from preaching and making a fool of himself and making a fool of their family. And Jesus, when told they are there, says, well, who is my mother? Who's my brother? And he looks at his disciples. He says, that's my family. He ain't trying to be disrespectful. He's like, but that's my family. Why is he saying, listen, listen to me. Some, I'm just helping somebody right now. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you. Sometimes you, you, you can't share everything with your family. Why? Because your family, 
They love you probably more than anything. Even what they believe God might be doing in your life. And so if they love you more than what God might be doing in your life, then they'll have good intentions with what they say with you. But it might not be what God wants to do in your life. So you can't tell them everything. And you can't tell. I mean, here's the second one. You can't just tell anybody everything because they don't love God and they don't love you. One, you shouldn't even be talking to them. You got to be you got to be slow to speak. When, when we planted this church, my wife and I, when we came to plant this church, outside of my wife, there were probably only three people that knew the vision, knew the plans. At least Steve is one of them. What I, I believe God had called me to do, and guess what? None of them were our family members. Why? Because... Everybody, although they might have good intentions, is not always for what God. They can't handle it. If I would have told my mom, look, look, I just graduated with a master's degree. I'm leaving this, this plus job I got right now, and, and I'm going to go plant a church. I'm uprooting my family to plant a church. I got two kids and one on the way and just tried to talk, up, talk about all these crazy things and great things I think God's going to do. And she's like, you out your mind? You need to take care of your family, which is true. But see, her intentions were not necessarily God's will for me. So you can't tell everybody everything. Listen to me, listen to me. Don't share too quickly what God has for you. Let me say it again. Don't share too quickly what God has for you. Pray, plan, prepare for where God is taking you. Nehemiah models this, gets all the plans together, And then verse 17 through 20, he calls all the people together to share that the Lord's hand is on him. And here are the plans. He says, verse 18, let's rise up and build. But then verse 19, the people, those same people or the opposition from earlier, they start rising up too. they start jeering and despising the work, saying you're against the king. Now, I love verse 20 because Nehemiah, although he knows that the king has told him to do this, he doesn't give any credit to the king. He gives all credit to the authority of God. Look at verse 20. He says this, the God of heaven will make us prosper. I love that. The God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you, talking to the people jeering, you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He basically says, this is God's land, not yours. He then uses the word portion and right. A portion, let me break this down, listed, this is this is an allocated share. It's also used metaphorically of belonging. So he's saying that although this land is God's, he has given it to us as a portion to share. That's stewardship. Take care of it. This is your land. It's mine, but I need you to take care of it. Steward it well. Then he says the word right or claim. This means entitlement. And claim means memorial, where Nehemiah is possibly referring to the right uh, to worship in Jerusalem. So all in all, he's saying, this is the land that was given to us by God, and we will take it back and rebuild it for what it was intended. A land in which our lives now, as we live them, will bring honor and glory to God. We will worship. This is him talking to these people, jeering and despising. And I know someone's sitting there saying, well, all right, Pastor D, I feel you, but why is this important for us today? Listen, here's why it's important. The rebuilding of the walls and Jerusalem prefigures the building of the church in the New Testament, which is the church today. And friends, who has authority over the church? Jesus. And who does Jesus save by dying on the cross when you believe in him? Us. This means he has called us to build his church just like Nehemiah here in our text. Now, the question becomes, how do we do this? Listen, 
We do it just like Nehemiah did by holding on to our confession of faith and by standing firm on the rock of Jesus. But y'all don't believe me, do you? Y'all don't believe me. You know, Jesus says this to us in Matthew chapter 16, 18. I'm going to break it down for you. He says this. Look at these words. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I do realize that this is a very controversial verse and one that the Catholic faith would say, this is directed towards Peter. Peter's the rock. He's the first priest, and Jesus is going to build his church on Peter. Now, I do agree that Jesus is directly talking to Peter here. But in the original language, when you break this down, Peter is pronounced Petros, which means small rock. Then when Jesus says rock, it's pronounced Petra, which means bedrock or solid foundation. So follow me in this. In this case, Jesus is using a play on words saying, Peter, you are a small rock. But on this solid rock, this foundation is which I, that's where I'm going to build my church. Which causes the question, well, what in the world is Jesus talking about? So if you back up, verse 16, he asked Peter, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. So the rock that Jesus will build his church on is the confession of who he is. This goes with the rest of the New Testament. I'm trying to teach y'all something here. This goes with the rest of the New Testament because all throughout the book of Acts, Peter is just one of the uh, apostles. And the church is built on the profession of faith in Jesus, not Peter. Paul proclaims Jesus and paints and plants churches all over the place in Jesus' name, not Peter. <laughs> Ephesians 2.20, Paul rephrases what Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 18, and he says, when talking about the church that is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ is the cornerstone. Now, hopefully you're with me in all of this. The foundation, the rock, and the cornerstone is Jesus. Not Peter. Peter is a small rock. Jesus is the solid foundation. Who defeats Satan, sin, and death? Jesus. Now, friends, in all of this, this is very important. Why? Because in the midst of all our trials, in the midst of the calamities of life, in the midst of the chaos and the trials, that you hit, whether in this world or just walking out this door, Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, he lets the believer know that the church, the believer, can take heart because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and our profession of faith, which I ain't done yet, which I ain't done, means that as Nehemiah says in verse 20, we have a portion and a right to build and be the church of Jesus Christ. Some of y'all just missed that. I didn't hear no amens. This means that no matter what comes your way, trials, their identity is built upon an immovable foundation in Jesus Christ. So as I said in week one, y'all, let's rebuild. Let's rebuild and be the church he's called us to be. Let's think about all the things that God could do. And this isn't a lofty dream because when you look at Nehemiah, he takes people that were against the way of God, and they rededicate their lives, and they rebuild this wall. They rebuild Judah. And if he can do that, and the church stands firm, y'all look, listen to me. If we stand firm on the confession of Jesus Christ and what he's done in our life, the church can stand up in the midst of injustice. The church can be, uh, see, see revival in this city. The church can see the walls of division break down between races and, and, and socioeconomic statuses. The church can see healing in our context. The church can grow in numbers to where walls cannot hold us, y'all, because we stand firm on the immovable rock who is Jesus. It's not us building, but him using us to build his church. Let's rebuild. I want you to remember this. The next time 
Doubt creeps in your mind. Doubt creeps into your heart over whatever God has called you to, what he's gifted you with, the doubts of your relationship with him. Remember that God is a firm foundation. Your faith, the church, is built on an immovable rock. And when he calls you or uses you to do something, it's not you working. It's him working in and through you for his goodwill and his pleasure. See, when the church understands this, when we learn to rely on the strong and mighty rock of Jesus, then there ain't no mountain we can't climb together. As Nehemiah said, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. Let's rebuild, family. Let's rebuild. Y'all with me? Let's rebuild. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, God. We thank you that you are a solid rock that you are a firm foundation, that you give us favor through your son Jesus and all you've done through him, that even though we move and we waver, Jesus, you don't. God, I pray for the person that may be struggling in their faith or came in here and saying, I don't know where I stand with God. God, you brought them to the right place. And I know that you're working in their hearts to even get them to this place. So, Lord, I pray even now, whatever it may be, it's a lot of us in this room that we would just say, Jesus, take the will of my life. I'm tired of doing this thing on my own. I need you to be in the driver's seat. I've tried it my way. And it's just not enough. Make me the man or woman that you want me to be for your glory and for your good. I confess my wrongdoing and how I've turned away from you and I've went other ways, ways and, and, and trusted it for satisfaction and peace. But here I am, Lord. Lord, I do pray as I know you are honored in that prayer. I pray that now that they've come to you or whoever it might be, that you would use them for your glory. I pray for everyone in this room because all of us get off track. Our faith does tend to waver. And we forget the God who's loved us first. So, Lord, as we come back, I pray that we come back and we say like that song we sang earlier. We surrender it all. Jesus, here we are for your good, for your glory. Use us among the nation. Let us rebuild individually as a people of God and as a church that honors you in everything we do. Let this church grow in the way that you want it to, not the way we want it to. Get glory in our lives, Lord Jesus, as well as through our church corporately. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus that we all say together. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 9 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.